For our scripture this morning, we're going to be in Nehemiah 5. And as we start, I want to tell you, we've talked about the community here within this community, our church and who we are. We've talked about our connection to faith and how that grows. But there's another town as we continue talking about trading kingdoms, which is what's going on in the book of Nehemiah. There's another town which we've got some pictures of here, and I'm going to show you these. Really old picture. That's the original picture of a town in Tennessee. And I'll show you another picture here. There's a picture. They weren't like today where they thought about trying to fit everything in. The people were less important than the building. <laughs> they wanted you to see the whole building. This is a building in Rugby, Tennessee. Rugby, Tennessee was a utopian community. It's a normal town now. You could go there. It's about two hours north of where I grew up in Tennessee. But Rugby was founded by a group of British people who came over and said, we want to create a perfect society. And they thought, well, there's some things wrong with where they lived in England. So they moved here, bought hundreds of acres in what is still the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, and said, we're going to create this perfect community there. They wanted it to be free of any kind of classes, no rich, no poor, just people. They wanted it to be primarily agricultural, meaning people are farmers. And this is in the mid-1880s, so it was still possible to pull off just kind of farming was their way of doing things. But they had money because the people they were connected to back in Britain had lots of money, so they could build massive structures like this, big, beautiful houses. That was an inn, like a big, fancy hotel, basically. And they could have that structure on there. The other building I showed you was a church. By the mid-1880s, they'd attracted 300 people who bought in and said, we want this utopian community too. We're going to move in. We want to live there. They had 60 Victorian buildings because, again, they're coming from England, so they thought our buildings need to look like that, which is not what the rest of Tennessee looked like in the 1880s, for the record. That is not an average building in Tennessee. They had literary societies. They had drama clubs. They had croquet. They had tennis. They had rugby. They had football. This is a utopian community. They rode horseback. There were clear, flowing rivers, and they'd go swimming in them. They had a library. They had a grand inn, which was this big building up here. They also had less exciting things like general stores and sawmills, stables for horses. They had a newspaper. They had boarding houses. They had a drugstore, a dairy, and a butcher shop. And all this stuff going on all the time. They really were busy. Within a decade of when that photograph was taken, though, the whole town was gone and dead. What happened? Consider Nehemiah 5 with me. Verse 1 of Nehemiah 5 says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of, the, of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself. This is Nehemiah speaking. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are extracting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. 
I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the things which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill his promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on the wall, we did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides the, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people." Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, the beginning of this story goes just like Satan wants it to. People are exploiting each other, mistreating each other. People are suffering. People are having to put their sons and daughters into slavery. The story starts out so clearly going in the wrong direction. But the chapter ends just like you want it to. That's what we need in our lives. We need a chapter that starts with whatever imperfections or even flat out dysfunction represents our own lives or has represented our own lives. We need you to work out that change, to bring us to a holy place, to bring us to a transformed place. For many of us, you've done it through Christ and we thank you and we praise you for that. And yet we know that the work continues. We ask for it to make progress even this morning, knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You'll remember from last week that the Jews had finished this wall that they're building around Jerusalem. They had finished it up to half its height. They successfully resisted Sanballat and Tobias and the Ashdodites. They were surrounded on all sides by these people, but they built the wall to half its height. And now in chapter five, the Jews realize the problem is inside the wall. The problem is not just keeping the enemy out of the city. The enemy is in their hearts, in their homes. This is a sneaky threat for kingdom traders. All the swords and the trumpets and the having a trowel in one hand and a weapon in the other, all that stuff from last week was very effective 
But this week, they have a totally new threat inside the walls. And honestly, I don't know about you, but I had to read several times to get my head around the first part of this chapter, like the grain and the slavery kind of was like just, you know, getting my, and then I realized, okay, so the people need grain to eat and live, but there's an outcry, which didn't really fit. Why would there be an outcry? I mean, people need grain to eat and live. I get it, but that doesn't sound like the kind of thing you have an outcry about inside the walls of Jerusalem. So I kept reading and then I read, well, there's another group of people who have a lot of sons and daughters. Well, <laughs> that can lead to some outcries sometimes, but still, I didn't quite think, why would the whole city be getting worked up about this and have a big fight? And then the scriptures say, well, there's a famine that's affecting another group of people. And I go, okay, I think we're getting somewhere now. Famine, pretty big deal. This is agricultural society. There's no stop and shop, you know, or there's no other like place 6,000 miles away that can put it on a plane and fly food in, you know, like we can do today sometimes. These people are having to mortgage their fields, the land that they own, which they just got back after returning from Babylon for the most part. They're mortgaging that land, their vineyards, their houses, everything they got, they're mortgaging it to people who have money so that they can go buy grain. And then in verse 4, there's a third group of people who, you'll be relieved, there's a third group of people, they have to pay taxes. <laughs> ancient world, ancient problem, they got to pay taxes. And their fields and their vineyards are getting mortgaged to pay those taxes. So that's not great news either. Three groups within the community all have a problem getting grain. Sometimes it's because they got a lot of family members, they got high taxes, they got other issues going on, but their basic problem is they're not getting their food and they're doing the same basic solution, which is we're mortgaging our fields or we're having our children have to be put into slavery, having our children are having to work at a young age and they're losing their freedom and, and it's unclear how bad it is, but they call it slavery. A whole bunch of people have a big problem throughout the city and the city as a result, the entire community of God's people has a big problem. And then the outcry gets even worse because the nobles and the rulers are exploiting and taking advantage of people. They're giving high interest loans basically that are disadvantaging people that are already struggling. They've got money, they've got access to resources, they're people of privilege, and they're saying, we'll give you money, but you have to give us your land in exchange. You have to give us your vineyard in exchange. You have to do this process with us, and we're going to get richer, and you're going to just get by, because now you can pay your taxes, now you can buy grain, but in the meantime, we got your land, we got your sons, we got your daughters. All of you can see this is a losing deal for everybody except the people with power and wealth. It's no wonder that Nehemiah is very, very angry. You can sort of just picture, you don't need the Hebrew for this one. You can just sort of imagine, <laughs> just put yourself in that shoe and think about you look over and you see what happens to your neighbors and how angry you would get. And I think it goes to another level because Nehemiah has been taking so much time to say, let me lead you against these enemies outside, Sanballat, Tobias, the Ashdodites, the Arabs, all these people. Let me take time to teach you, to motivate you. We got the wall to half its height. You're, you're out there with a sword in one hand and a trowel with the other. The men are in the low places. Everybody, daughters, children, all these people are all in the fight. They're all in the fight. And now a chapter later, Nehemiah is watching those same sons and daughters that are in the fight get put into slavery. 
the same fields that are feeding a devastated people group trying to repopulate and rebuild a devastated city are now losing its people, losing its land, so that a few rich people can get off better. No wonder he's angry. He's made all of these precautions for enemies outside the walls, and the enemies inside the walls have become a problem. A great outcry has to be voiced. That's the first thing I wanted to share. In this kind of community situation, a great outcry has to be voiced. And for some of you who are starting to think, you know, where will this message be going? I just want to say that I titled the message, Win Every Battle, because there's fights outside the walls and fights inside the walls. So I'm thinking God makes it possible to win every battle. But we've got to walk through this a little bit. A great outcry must be voiced. These Jews had to cry out. They had to speak out. Somebody had to speak up. It wasn't going to fix itself. They had to speak up and say, this situation is frustrating. It's painful. We're suffering. We're going to cry out. But more than that, they needed to be heard. They needed to be listened to. And this is where Nehemiah is incredible. This is where he's amazing that he listens to them. He hears the great outcry. One of the great themes throughout the book of Nehemiah is they talk to each other. Now, this is a great outcry. This is not the same kind of talk they've been having up to this point. But there's talking going on. There's community having communication about what's going on in their life. Things are bad. Things are good. We're scared. Whatever it is, they're sharing all this stuff in community. And in this case, Nehemiah listens to their emotional pain. He listens to their emotional load. Some people had to talk and some people had to listen. And life inside the walls right now is very, very hard. Because Satan is always on the attack. He realized, I can't make any progress. I'm not succeeding at all against the wall. I've tried everything I can from outside the wall, and he found a way in. Satan is still on the attack. And Nehemiah 5 doesn't have concrete evidence that these people are motivated by Satan or that they're attacking one another. But this injustice pops up that you have to say, well, that's not from God. It's not from God that God's own people would be saying, let me make money at the expense of your children. Let me make money at the expense of your vineyard. Let me make money. Let me have a better life. It's ultimately Satan who's behind this corruption, but it's also the people of God who made it wrong. So a great outcry must be heard. But what comes next in Nehemiah 5 is just as important. A great injustice must be corrected. Another comment about this whole thing that comes to mind is the priority of unity. These people get it. We got to have unity. And I said that this chapter is about the sneakiest threat that these kingdom traitors have ever encountered. And what's, what flips everything, what starts to turn this around so that they can win this battle, is that the people in Nehemiah start to consider others more important than themselves. Philippians 2 talks about that. It uses that exact phrase, consider others more important than yourselves. That creates unity. It creates trust, which plays out on a practical level. It's not just pie-in-the-sky ideas. People start to say, hey, we've done the wrong thing. People start to say, we'll say no to what we could do so that things get better for somebody else or things become fair for somebody else. And that enables others in the community to say, we'll deeply trust somebody like that. We'll deeply trust, the Jews come, to this, come around to this idea, we'll deeply trust somebody who would disadvantage themselves so that we can remain stable, so that we can have a good life, so that our daughters and sons can come home. Now, some of you, if you're thinking about trusting, would still instinctively go, I can't trust. 
I can't trust a person like that. You, probably, you might have this inner response that just goes, I can't trust people like that. I, I, I couldn't do it. If you put yourself in these shoes, I couldn't trust somebody like that. I've been hurt too much, or I've seen the worst that people can do. I've seen the worst that can happen when people say they believe in God, and, and I, I just I can't do it. It's, it's real. It's happened in your life, and it's still affecting you today. I came across something in my own private devotional, and I, I stuck it in here. Right here we go. This is a prayer from somebody named Dallas Willard, and I wanted to share it. If you feel like you're too hurt to say, I trust people yet, I'm not going to say trust them. I'm just going to say maybe this prayer would help you. Dallas Willard writes this prayer. Healing Father, help me release the pain of wounds I carry from others. Allow me to see the goodness, mercy, and grace that permeates the Trinitarian community. And help me, O Lord, embrace who you say I am. In Christ's name, amen. That'll be around later if you didn't get a chance to write it down. You can also take out your phones, no judgment. <laughs> we're, we're all right on that. We want you to hear what God wants you to hear this morning. For all of us, though, I encourage you at this moment, protect this church from division. Living Hope's been here for 25 years. Pretty sure somebody who's been around rich, maybe. I'm pretty sure it was 25 years ago this month. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. 25 years ago, October 1998, if I'm doing my math right, we good? Sorry if I'm wrong. 25 years ago, October 1998, this church existed. And since that time in the late 1990s, we've had different pastors, we've had different ministry emphases, we've had different buildings, I'm told, been all over the place, different identities of church. But a few things always remain the same for God's people. And one of them is the power of unity. Don't let division creep in. Nehemiah 5 shows us that whatever we're going to do with the next decades that God gives us, whatever we're going to do, the surest way to fail is to mistreat each other. That's what Nehemiah 5 may explain. Who, anybody want to move to Jerusalem at this point? <laughs> anybody like, yep, time, I love that school system. Let's take our kids there. Oh, I love that landowning system. Let me go buy land there so it gets taken away from me by high taxes and unjust neighbors who rob me blind. Anybody moving to this Nehemiah 5? I didn't think so. How do we know that we're pursuing unity? Are our actions coming from love for other people? Are we more interested in the whole community thriving than we are individually being blessed? What if we changed our choices into such a thing that all of us got something wonderful, even if a few of us only got something good? I'm not talking about complete flipping the script and some of you get to be miserable, so that, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, what if all of us agreed that we might only get the good, but in process, all of us got something wonderful? What if community was a blessing to all of us because it was a wonderful place to be, a group of people to be part of? These humans in Nehemiah's time made things wrong, but those people make it right. Nehemiah seeks justice. Scripture says he was very angry. He thinks it over. That's why it says he, he consulted with himself. He thought it over, in other words. He kind of took a second to avoid just running down there with a whip or something or a big stick or whatever and going after some people. He took time. He thought it over. And he contended, my Bible says he contended with the right people. He holds the right people responsible. And I think that this is a helpful cycle here. I call this how to be contentious, just to be funny. Some of us have an instinct, of course, we want to like be contentious. We can't help but be contentious. I had some moments like that this week where I wanted to be contentious. And I, you know, by the grace of God, held on. But I wish I'd heard this then. What Nehemiah does is he notices the great 
outcry. He notices the great injustice. He realizes, wow, there's something really wrong here. And number two, he empathizes with the victims, the people struggling, so they feel heard, so they feel cared for. Number three, he slows down and thinks. I already said this. He consults with himself. He slows it down, lets the emotions resolve a little bit. And then number four, he puts responsibility where it belongs. There's some people who need to get confronted over this, and he deals with it that right way. Do you know what happens when the people of God start making things right? Praise. Well, yeah, things do get better. Amen. (laughs) Things do get better. But Nehemiah 5 makes a really interesting point. They start praising God. It hadn't talked about that elsewhere in Nehemiah 5. I frankly, off the cuff, don't remember it in Nehemiah 4. But Nehemiah 5 says they fixed this problem between them and they started praising God. Because when something was wrong between them, it seems like something was limiting their ability and their instincts to praise God. And that gets fixed. I think a lot more praise comes to God when people treat each other right. When they treat each other well, a great praise must be given. In our own day and time, some of you, I don't know all your life stories and I don't need to know, some of you may have inherited a house or you may have bought your own house, you may have kind of made your life on Cape Cod or you may have moved here in more recent years. We only moved here three years ago. There's all kinds of stories and layers to this. And I've learned that in the towns of Cape Cod, they all have different kinds of dynamics and different kinds of life going on and different things. I know where I live at, at the moment, we've only got a couple more weeks in East Ham, but people frequently say, well, East Ham's got a lot of tourism, but it has nothing as far as like just kind of jobs for people. There's no industry. And so I hear some people talking about property taxes because if we had more industry, the property, you know, there's all these things, right? I don't know what it'd be for Dennis or Barnstable or Sandwich or wherever, but there's all these kind of things that go on with towns, all these kind of discussions. And some towns are perceived as doing better and some towns are perceived as doing worse or this one doesn't have this and that one has that. It's kind of this natural thing to humanity. But here we are, here we are, 200 years later, 400 years later, here we are, and some of us have whatever town we have, whatever house we have, whatever life we have, and if you can follow the example of Nehemiah, you might miss out on some things. We're going to dive into verses 14 through 19, but we see from Nehemiah, he chooses to miss out on some things, and some of you might, from a strictly earthly standpoint, miss out on some things in order to create justice. But what you get when you do that is a deeper relationship with God. Praise comes to God because people are putting love for each other before their own personal benefits. What happens, Nehemiah shows us, is that you get honor before God and man for being selfless, for choosing his way. Hebrews 11.25 is a chapter many years later, of course, centuries later. It talks about Moses. And it says in Hebrews 11.25 that Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He was born in Pharaoh's house. He, was a, he could have been like a prince. He, he could have been like the son. He could have had all this honor and everything else. He turned his back on all of that to go with God's people and to follow them out into the wilderness and lead them into a new life. He chose to be mistreated, persecuted, sent out all the rest. You know the story. Rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He had the right fear. Nehemiah had the right fear. The right fear makes all else right. Fearing God overcomes the sneakiest threat among kingdom traitors. That's the main lesson that I see here, that fearing God overcomes this sneaky threat. Nehemiah is exercising faith. He's trusting God to meet his needs, not the king, not injustice, 
not shrewd ways to get more land or to, you know, do this and this and this and help people out, but to secretly make himself wealthy. He's accepting what God provides through the soil that grows near Jerusalem. He'll drink wine that's made there. He'll eat food that's grown there. He'll eat animals raised there. In our day and time, you could go out. I'm not exactly sure, but I think there might be cars that have like a quadruple climate zone. They have like, you know, a driver's side backseat heater and a passenger side backseat heater, right? I see some heads nodding, which tells me those of you who bought a new car recently. So you could have like all this kind of climate control stuff going on. One time somebody gave us a car, it had a power seat on the driver's side, which was heated, but not on the passenger side, right? The passenger side, you got that metal bar under the seat that you have to like try to pull it up and jerk and you do one of these, you know, and you hope it goes back and forth. Meanwhile, I'm over here with the button. Lumbar support, I'm like feeling pretty good. Ready for the long car ride? I get nasty looks, so I just put it in drive and we go, right? You can control the radio, how about that? I've got the heated seat, you know? It's even better right now. Quadruple climate zones, climate control, all this stuff in our car. Here's the thing. Nehemiah looked at that situation. He said, I'm going to go get a used Ford with manual windows and one of those awkward bars under the driver's seat that I've got to like shimmy my chariot forward. I got a broken saddle with a busted saddle horn, you know, an old nag of a horse, whatever. He's saying, I'm totally in with these people. I'll eat the same food as them drink the same wine as them. I don't care how neglected the vineyards are. I don't care that it's been hundreds of years lying fallow. I'm in for this with these people. I'm in with them. Nehemiah had integrity. He didn't take money. He didn't buy land. He didn't domineer the people. He built the wall. He included all his servants in the work, and his servants weren't allowed to domineer people either. He didn't lay burdens on the people. He didn't take their bread. He didn't take their wine. He didn't impose 40 shekels of silver. That's a lot of money. You can do the conversion at home. Google's got the answer. It's a lot of money. What he did instead is he said, I'm going to set a table for 150 Jews, which is probably three times as many people as in this room right now. So that's a big table or multiple tables, especially in the ancient world. He said, I'm going to set a table for 150 Jews, and I'm going to put out all the food, all the grain, all the wine. He names like all these animals. I forget already, but he names all these animals at the end of the chapter. One ox, six choice sheep, birds, once in 10 days, all this wine. And by the way, I didn't demand the governor's food allowance because the king had said, listen, you're the governor. I'll you know, take care of your needs to do this building project you're on. So the king sort of like, I'll take, Nehemiah says, I didn't take the governor's food allowance. I didn't take money from Babylon to make this happen. He had integrity. And he could have said, I'm going to meet all my own needs. I'm going to take care of the governor's food allowance. I need security. You know, I'm, I'm the big shot making this thing happen. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to set a table because he knew that fearing God removes the sneakiest threat for kingdom traders. He didn't do it because at the end of verse 18, he realizes the servitude was heavy on this people. Their life was heavy. The average person was held down with something burdensome. I know you don't go around using the word servitude. I don't either. Life was heavy. It was oppressive. It was hard. And he knew it. And he said, part of building a wall is having integrity. So I'm going to set a table for other people in the middle of it. They need a feast. I'm going to set a big table for them rather than take from them. 
He looked around and he saw people that were weighed down. He said, I'm going to do something good for them. I've got a little bit I can share. I've got a lot I can share. And a lot of us could easily say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're the guy that the king sent to do the job, if your job title is CEO or COO or CFO or one of these other C things, and you got the corner office, you own the business, religious leaders, football coaches, business leaders, it's those people who this lesson is for. But it's not true because it's the entire unity of Jerusalem and the Jewish people that was threatened by this. It's not just that Nehemiah shouldn't be eating the best food. It's that the threat of the entire community was right in their faces because of injustice. The entire unity was at risk and divided, they would fall, right? A house divided against itself cannot stand. Nehemiah did the right thing because his hands were clean. It wasn't just that Nehemiah did the right thing because leaders are supposed to do the right thing and he had a PR campaign and some handlers who like put out good social media for him and made him look nice, show up on Saturday at the, you know, and do the charitable whatever. He had integrity throughout the week and he'd been having it and living it out for months and weeks. He'd been living it out all this time. So when it came time to be authoritative and to get in people's faces and to be contentious in the right way, and hold certain people responsible, he had that authority because he'd been living with integrity all that time. Every person's integrity matters, not just the leaders. It's private integrity that matters. Nehemiah had straight and true character. His actions were consistent with the way he was supposed to live before God. What he'd been doing prepared him perfectly for the crisis. It's possible that you will live your life with perfect integrity and never have a crisis like this. It's possible that this church will maintain our unity and will never like, have to sort of deal with this. Of course, it is probably pretty likely in a sense that we won't literally be doing what they're doing and literally be overcoming what they're doing. But again, there's a sneaky threat, which never quite looks the same, but always follows the same basic principles. So all of us need to be prepared for whatever crisis or challenge may come. There'll be injustice, there'll be trauma that may come. And when it does, if we've been living for years with the faithful compassion of God, with empathy and with understanding, we'll have credibility and we'll have conviction. If we look around and say, wow, that experience is hard for that person and show empathy and show compassion, our unity will build. People will say, I can trust somebody like that. They listened to me, they cared about me. It's then that you can go fight for justice with credibility and with conviction. So Rugby, Tennessee, that wonderful, tiny utopia, some of you are wanting to live there, and then I told you it was gone. Now it's just a regular Tennessee community, whatever that's worth. By 1900, within roughly 20 years of when it started, it was all but dead. Most of the original residents were gone. They'd either moved away, some of them had died, but they were all gone. There were still homes there, but what doomed rugby? What doomed the utopia? It wasn't their devotion. These people had moved in. They'd spent a lot of money. One person at least, I read different things to try to get familiar again with the history. I've been to rugby before, but I, I refreshed myself, and it seemed like one person had given $75,000, which in the 1880s is a pretty substantial sum of money. So people put in money, they moved into the neighborhood, they built houses, they lived there, it was their life. They had fun games, they had libraries, they had literary societies and drama clubs and played croquet and swam in the rivers and all the rest of that. I mean, this was their life, they were all in. So what doomed it? 
By the way, it wasn't atheism or godlessness. These were people operating from a Christian worldview who left Britain. I couldn't dive into the depths of exactly what they believed, but they had a church in their community that was built intentionally. I'm pretty sure most of them went. The guiding principles of the community were Christian about being fair to one another and good. So they had some of these values in place that we would identify with. It was a good idea. People were determined and resilient and creative. So what doomed them? Ten years after they became a thriving town, they started to flounder. Some of it was challenges. Typhoid went through the village. They had two major fires that burned down buildings. The originals left. But the people still survived all of that. They rebuilt. They kept going. Well, one thing is the community's financial backers, the people that were managing the money, were in Boston and London, and they started to mismanage the money. They started to, you know, continue to do well for themselves, but not necessarily think about the needs way down in Tennessee, right? Some little nowhere town in Tennessee. Secondly, there was land, but it, somebody didn't really kind of research if the land was good for farming, and it turned out not to be good for farming. It was the wrong kind of soil, wrong acidity and pH and yada yada, so there's all this stuff wrong with farming. Another problem is that all these people they brought over from Britain were not people who knew how to be farmers or even wanted to be farmers. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's communication breakdown when you tell people your well-being for life depends on farming, and they say, I've never done that before. That's not a good reason to cross the Atlantic in a boat. Right? So it starts your life over. It's not a good reason, in my humble opinion. Here's another thing. Lawsuits started to happen and go around. People started arguing about who owns the land, how much were they supposed to pay, who promised this, who did that, you can imagine, right? <laughs> Here come the lawsuits. Compare that to what Jesus said. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you were mine if you love one another. In rugby, unity was just about impossible. The way people treated each other mattered, and they weren't getting it done. Last week we said if you want to battle enemies, you got to stay flexible, you got to set your mind, you got to stay active. And that works outside the wall, but inside the wall, it's even easier. It's even more simple. Treat each other right. Love one another. Fearing God overcomes that sneaky threat. We can just honor the way God set life up, fear him, and overcome that sneaky threat by loving one another. This church, you, can continue what rugby could not. And it'll be easier said than done for them because while they had the money and the literary society and the drama club and a big fancy inn and Victorian architecture in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, we can have love the world can build great literary societies and swim in clear, cold rivers and pray, play croquet and ride horseback and all the rest of that stuff. But here, inside the walls of the church, we can say we're loving one another. We're loving one another, and that's not something you're going to find everywhere else. Let's take a moment in prayer before we go today. Father, we thank you for another chance to hear from you another chance to talk from you, another chance for you to say there's a question that we need to answer or a thought that we need to think or a relationship that we need to restore, prayers that we need to pray or actions that we need to do. Some of us need you to fight for us. All of us on some level need you to fight for your church. You are the builder of it. And we've got our own end of the deal to carry out. We've, we, you gave us instruction to love one another, to treat each other right, 
to be forgiving and so on, and that's our part. But it's also up to us to take that action step. You won't do it for us. So I pray that we do the actions that we need to do. And I pray in the meantime that you would add to the loaves and the small fish that we bring into this equation and continue to multiply a work of grace and truth and redemption, an incredible miracle of new life in us and through us as we obey and honor you. We're doing a small part, and I pray that we do it, but we still need you to be the great God that you are, and we trust you as we go out this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you go, I know we've talked a lot about people. We've talked a lot about tough topics, talked a lot about what to do to get along and that's kind of hard to think about because it brings up stuff where we didn't get along and where we didn't have what we wanted. But I'd like to remind you that Nehemiah is not ultimately the person that we fix our eyes upon. Nehemiah is not, he's a good example. We can learn something from chapter five, but there's an even better person to ponder, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. I saved this till now to tell you that he saw all of us living inside the walls of our own families, our own broken communities, our own difficult jobs, our own troubled relationships. He saw us harassed, a basically good creation, but harassed and struggling. He saw a great injustice. He saw the reality of sin. And he said, I see people that are responsible for the world, but I see people that have been sinned against, and I'm going to contend for them. I'm going to go to their enemies, and I'm going to contend for them. And in his own way, he thought it over, And he took on flesh and he came to earth for you and for me. And he contended with those who created your problems. And that's why as as you leave, your response is not just go be like Nehemiah. It's appreciate and accept and, and receive the Christ who came for you and contended for you. It's Christ who overcame the brokenness of your world. It's Christ who said, I'll fix what's wrong in your community. As you think about winning the fight, winning the whole battle that goes on outside the walls and inside the walls of your life and our life as a church, it's Christ who wins ultimately. It's Christ who contends with your enemies. He has done something about it. And you can receive that life this morning if you haven't, if you haven't let Christ be in direct control of your life and God and help you through your things. He's ready to do that. He's ready to contend for you on a personal level. It's a long journey for him to make all those injustices right, but he can do it. He did it in Nehemiah 5 through his people, and he can do it today through you. As you leave this morning, you walk as those who've heard the good news. Nehemiah is a good man, but Christ is a living, loving Savior for you. Go today in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.